Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Today's episode is brought to you by KeepKey, the easy, safe, and simple way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and many other digital assets. There's no time like the present to protect yourself from hackers, malware, and viruses. Visit KeepKey.com to order your secure hardware wallet today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. Hello, everybody. So before I start today's episode, I just want to do a life update. Um, So I've joined the MIT Media Labs Digital Currency Initiative as their head of community and long-term societal impact, uh, which I'm pretty excited about. A really nice group of aligned people there. Um, So that means that I'm going to shut down my Patreon. Uh, I've shut down my Patreon and that this podcast will likely continue, but possibly in a different form with the Media Lab or with the DCI or whatever. So we'll see. Um, and I just, as another quick note there, my this podcast was recorded before I joined the DCI. So clearly these are my views and do not reflect those of the, the Digital Currency Initiative, the DCI. Hello, everybody. Today I chat with Arthur Brock, the founder and acting CEO of Holochain, which is this interesting agent-centric blockchain platform. And the conversation is kind of broken into two parts. The first half, we chat mostly at a systems level about the shift from an object-centric paradigm to an action-centric paradigm, um, i.e. the shift from nouns to verbs. Um, and we chat about some, Arthur has some interesting thoughts on this um, around, especially like objects as a temporary configuration i.e a subset of information flows that's kind of a weird thought that like you got all these atoms flowing around eventually they come together to become a coffee and then or a coffee cup and then they go back to their their flow state so that's the first half and then the second half um we chat about you know kind of dive in a little bit to the technicals about how holochain works um with its agent centric instead of token centric model and also how it doesn't have consensus uh you know you essentially just put things on this peer-to-peer ledger um and so it's it's just interesting to get this powerful perspective that we don't get very often um where you say hey these are things that must be true within the blockchain and ecosystem and it's just nice to kind of be pushed out of that mindset so and i wish i could have spent more time diving in understanding the difference with you know utxos whatever but but uh i did not um, or we did not have enough time um in any case uh enjoy the episode Hello, everybody. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. In this podcast, we take a systems-thinking approach to doing good in the world. We have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes, and today we're focusing on both Series A, macro systems, where we ask the question, where are we as humanity headed? And also Series C, software systems, where we ask the question, how is the digital world structured? Um, and to chat about both those things, I'm very happy to introduce Arthur Brock to the show. Arthur is a co-founder of Holochain, an agent-based distributed computing system. So, Arthur, thanks for being on show and welcome thanks it's good to be here yeah we succeeded in with the microphone stuff so we're, we're chatting now um, so at a high level arthur before we actually dive into holochain tell me how you because i think you kind of see the world in an interesting way tell me how you how do you see the world how do you see our current context and how are you trying to kind of positively shape it well um 
Whole Chain actually comes out of uh, sort of uh, a bunch of other work. And uh, that other work is, has really been looking at contextualizing the economy differently and uh, social systems and how it is that we actually can coordinate with each other on large scale. And um, I think we've, we, we didn't, this project didn't grow up out of sort of crypto token ICO world. It has really grown up out of um, building social coherence in computing on all scales so that small groups or large groups could actually like agree to a set of rules they're following together or a tool that they're using together and be able to have a context in which that is mutually held and hosted. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. So you're saying, yeah, you, you have been working on this for an extended period of time and then only re and then as the kind of blockchain crypto ICO world kind of popped up, you were part of that, but you were working at creating social coherence, especially through a computing layer for a long time. And so tell me then, so when you think about positively shaping it, your goal is to kind of create or like, t- tell me your, your goal there around the kind of social coherence coordination piece. Well, I see you mention later in the agenda here, Scepter and Metacurrency, but I kind of want to pull it up to now. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. All right, cool. So yeah, out of the Metacurrency project, the simple goal, the like the most simple way of stating the goal was, is trans transcending, um, our current framework of currencies, um, to what we believe is really the next, upcoming kind of post-monetary economy. And one of the core requirements in terms of the functional systems we build is just a really simple thing of you and I should be able to interact, or you could say transact, without any third party being inserted between us, not of our choosing. No point of enclosure where some third party is controlling our interaction. And that sounds straightforward and simple to some degree to, to do that. But, you know, when you consider that PayPal calls itself peer-to-peer payments, all you need is an email address, you know, well, there's all of this centralized stuff accidentally boiled in there. It's not actually peer-to-peer. Even an email address happens in a domain name namespace, which has a centralized authority, and, a, and an email server is a centralized server. And you have to go to PayPal's website and you know do the transaction through their centralized site and use a centralized currency to do it. And like there's, and you have to to connect to the internet, which you need an IP address. Which there's like all of these things actually put third party agents, not necessarily of your choosing, in between us. And um, so we had some pretty big goals about how to do this. And, and just a note in the, in the in meta currency context, we don't mean money when we say currency. We have this little mnemonic where you can think of it like current, like flow, and see, the ability to see currents or flows. We make symbol systems to coordinate on large scales. And money is just one part of that. You know, college degrees and credits and grades are all also currencies that are non-monetary that everybody learns to use. And, you know, they're all over the place and we don't think about it, but it shapes social behavior and it's part of how we create collective intelligence. And so in terms of positively shaping the, the future and the current context, 
we started building a, a grand platform <laughs> for rebuilding some of these things in a way that took that took out all of the centralization you, modeling on nature using biomimicry and patterns that we find in nature and in our bodies and you know that kind of thing that's called scepter which is short for receptor because it's receptor based computing and uh when we saw the trajectory or rather kind of the hype that was building around blockchain we took a small piece of scepter and made a standalone version basically how multi-instance receptors uh synchronize data with each other to maintain shared state um we took that piece of scepter and built a standalone version which is holochain and so holochain is really coming out of much deeper work about collective intelligence rather than managing tokens mm -hmm. and so we end up having a very different architecture and structure to it Got it, got it. And then we'll dive into that structure in a bit. And at a high level, it's agent-based versus non-agent-based um, consensus, or agent-centric versus, you know, kind of consensus-centric. So I do want to yeah, uh, stay on that point of the currency um, piece, which I think is actually very powerful because thinking in terms of, um, if you think about from a systems perspective, you have kind of stocks and flows. And for much of our life, we've thought in terms of objects and those stocks and how, and there's object-oriented programming and all those things. And I think we're transitioning to this world of flows. And as you talk about it, there's all these different flows that are based around trust, whether it's trust in money or trust in institutions that would have academic credentialing or what have you. Um, and I think that, that that flow perspective is one that is just very, very helpful for understanding our current reality because things are happening in flows as you say all the time around us and we just kind of need to be a little bit woke to think in the flow perspective to then see all the flows happening all around us um so i guess that makes so, so you're starting to answer also some of my staying a little bit at a high level for a second you're starting to answer some of my question around why some of the folks in both the platform co-op world and also in kind of like the deep systems thinking world like you know jordan greenhall and daniel schmachtenberger why they feel kind of aligned with you which is because you are kind of you've you've come at this from a root cause kind of social coherence perspective and then only as a result of that have kind of built this blockchain project so but could you kind of give me a little bit more texture and give our listeners a little bit more texture on why i mean i know that there aren't that many blockchain projects that went to this like for example this platform co-op open thing that just happened but you were there so tell me a little bit more about you know why you're aligned with those worlds cool yeah let me go back actually to the thing that you were just saying about yeah. stocks and flows yeah. um and I think that really hits the nail on the head. Um, and if I were to kind of blow it up into a, a really large scale thing, I would say that we are um, playing out the kind of end game of an object centric paradigm, a stock centric, but a, I think object centric paradigm um, with our kind of Western reductive materialist uh, worldview that kind of turns everything into objects bouncing off of each other, sort of, right? At all levels. Yep. And um, anything that isn't an object bouncing around is kind of something we sweep under the carpet and we'll figure out how it really boils down to objects later, kind of thing. And um, Yeah, I'm I, I staying on that for a second. Sorry, keep going. Yep. 
No, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that the, um, I agree with you that, I mean, you can see it. There's a bunch of different forms of this happening, but there's, there's things like Kevin Kelly wrote a book recently called The Inevitable, which is, it's these 12 different forces that are shaping the future. And they're all just verbs. Um, they're remixing They're you know, and so it's just screening. It's all these verbs. So he's kind of, he's moving away from that noun based world. You can also see it just from a programming perspective, moving a lot of people are moving from, or not a lot, but some people on the cutting edge are moving from object based or, um, or object oriented programming towards these like kind of functional programming and i think that you're right to say that when we think about our kind of societal transition right now you can think of it as like the end of the industrial age and the beginning of the information and computing digital age or as you say we can think of it as the end of kind of the noun-based object-oriented age and the start of the verb-based kind of action-oriented flow-based age is that kind of what you're getting at it is like i think of it as the the scientific paradigm and the systems paradigm, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Like systems are alive, dynamic, and changing. They are they are characterized by flow, and science is characterized by cutting things into parts and analyzing the parts, kind of. I mean, it, what, what's interesting is that's right in the root of the word science, which is the same root as scissors and schism and schizo, right? It's mm-hmm. to cut and separate. And I think there's also a lot of ways that we are suffering from that separation. Yep, yep, I agree with that. That, shape, that whole worldview. Yeah. And inside of flows, and I'm not speaking metaphorically, literally everything is connected. We are breathing the same air, drinking the same water. You know, we all boundaries are temporary and permeable. And again, back to the stocks versus flows thing, objects are always and only a temporary configuration in a flow. This coffee mug I'm holding in my hand, <clears throat> you know, the ceramic came out of the ground somewhere. The, the, um, you know, the, the dyes on it, the, it's all holographically uh, colored and all this kind of stuff. Aurora Borealis colors, all, all this beautiful stuff. Like all those came from, you know, they were, processed as chemicals and then painted onto here. There's a whole series of flows that brought this thing together. And it is at the moment, a temporary accumulation that I'm holding in my hand. And, you know, when it gets dropped on the tile floor and shatters and swept into the wastebasket or whatever, you know, like it's flowing to somewhere as well. You know, objects are always a way of understanding flow constrained to certain membranes at certain times. But, objects don't get you flows necessarily flows get you objects so it's a it really is a superset that we can move into and we don't lose all of the great knowledge we've accumulated in the realm of objects but we have a better chance at understanding the health of systems which really comes down to flows yeah, I agree with that, and I and I agree with you to say that it's a we're working on a superset here that flows create objects, not really vice versa. That objects are just a and you, I like when people think about information theory in this way, where information is just a information kind of is is a, is a pattern, and you can think of your coffee cu- coffee cup as a temporary pattern based off of some random information flows. Um, and 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 especially true today as we as we have four billion network smartphones and hyperconnected kind of supply chain stuff. It's like we we have flows of of, of physical stuff, you know, Amazon supply chains, whatever. We have flows of information. That's um, all the, the internet connected age. And then we also have flows. We're starting to see these flows of value, especially with kind of blockchain enabled permissionless value flow. So um, yeah, we're getting into the world where, where things are going to be fluid. <laughs> and fast, <clears throat> you know, the world is changing really fast. And when our worldview, our mindset is 
tuned to objects which tend to be static and stay the same, it's harder for us to integrate the rate of change that we're starting to move at. Yeah, so let's stay on that for a second. How do you you think, I mean, because this is something that I kind of harp on in my show a lot, which is like, hey, things are going too fast. Like we need to keep, we need to, we're in a fragile time. How do we make sure that, um, how do we kind of put on a transitionary lens given our, this period of transition and speed? How, what is your kind of transitionary lens? How do you kind of view the world um, given this time of, of kind of hyper exponential change? Well, if you go to my personal website, artbrock.com, scroll down to the middle-ish, there's a diagram about living systems wealth that we created in the Metacurrency Project a lot for talking about um, wealth that is deeper than speculative tokens. And I actually want to connect this back to your last question about positively shaping some of the, the tech as well. But there's these different layers that all living systems have, right? There's there's the current economy, which is these speculative tokens, these sort of poker chips that are betting on the living economy, but they're not really a part of the living economy. Um, I'll, I could explain that more thoroughly, but I kind of want to shortcut mm-hmm. to say, you know, there's parts and products which are the stocks and flows of stocks and commodities and that type of stuff are all parts and products of a living system. But there's properties of living systems which are measurable but not tradable like parts and products are. Mm-hmm. right? And then there's um, performance of a living system, which is comparable, rankable. You can compare performance. Like we send Olympic athletes to go run the run the race on the same track at the same altitude together. You know, like we can rank performance but we can't trade it either, right? Like we think tradable is sort of the ultimate thing, but it's a tiny little part of this picture. You know, then there's the relationships, the relational level of wealth, which is acknowledgeable or nameable, but it's not even rankable or measurable in the same way. And then we get all the way out to, and this is back to the rate of change question, we get out to the realm of possible wealth. And um, that has to do with the evolutionary capacity of a system. And the evolutionary capacity of a system is correlated to its information handling capacity. So as we have exploded in our information handling capacity in this computing and networking age and that kind of stuff, literally evolution speeds up evolution, our, our capacity to evolve ourselves because of the ability to see the, the system feedback and have better information and that kind of stuff accelerates. And without stopping the information handling capacity, without limiting the information handling capacity, things only accelerate. Mm-hmm. Um, evolution only accelerates, change accelerates. And so I don't think we can fight that. What I think we need is a frame that can integrate that. Because in some ways, we're kind of socially retarded. Like we, I mean, retard as in slow, like we can't change socially very fast, right? We, uh, it takes us a while to integrate things. And we, I, when you, when you consider that there are people alive today, you know, that did not grow up with electricity and, you know, still remember horses on the roads and that kind of stuff. That's all in one lifetime, yep. how different this world is. Yep. And it's only accelerating. 
Yeah. Um, so some notes on that. So AI agree with you to say that this deeper wealth piece is interesting. And you can kind of think of our world as one where we've we've had generally one-dimensional money, aka nation-state fiat, and a bunch of different versions of it. And then in a way, this kind of blockchain crypto world kind of allows for n-dimensional money. Um, but as you say, money is just a form of the exchangeable versions of things. But the ex- there's also these underlying deeper forms of wealth, like uh, the you know the performance, the relational, all these other kinds that are that are not as easily exchangeable. Um, and those should also be accounted for, hopefully, within our like how we think of uh, the health of the system. So I agree with that. Uh, I also I definitely agree with you that uh, yeah, our information in this. Our inf- the information has gone up a ton <laughs> and our information handling capacity hasn't really gone up. We've kind of had decreasing coherence so even though we've had exponentially increasing kind of amounts of information um, at us. And I, that gets to this last point that you said around, you know, can we have a frame that can integrate the speed? Um, and as you say, there are people, I think of, you know, wait, but why's progress die units, which says, hey, if there's a person 10,000 years ago versus, you know, 9,000 years ago, the world wasn't that different. But if a person was 1,000 years ago versus today, or even 100 years ago versus today, the world is super, super different. And so like that rate of change is going up a ton. I feel like um, when we think about trying to kind of take that into account the thing that i think about is you know progressives versus um kind of conservatives and how that perspective is is around this tension around how much should be changed and how quickly should we change and the conservatives have a good point which is hey let's keep some things stable let's keep things rolling in this old way because the old way was good for these reasons and the progressives also have a good perspective which is hey let's we got to progress we got to make things different and we got to incorporate all these new kinds of change and i feel like as we go through this um this period people need yeah we'll need to think a lot more about um uh yeah that rate of change question and how to incorporate the speed in with our with our kind of social sphere and social systems totally Um, one one quick thing i don't know if you ever saw my blog post about the future of governance is not governments Mm. um but i define governance right at the beginning exactly connected to what you're talking about in terms of all living systems have to be able to adapt to changing circumstances around them and they have to maintain their system integrity they can't adapt so fully or randomly or quickly that things fall apart right so this governance or decision making or you know those kinds of things are all about both progress and conserving right so the idea that there's a this sort of dichotomy where you have to vote for a progressive or a conservative is a false dichotomy right that's actually something that i think diminishes our capacity to navigate the nature of integrating change by putting change and integrity at odds with each other when they're actually a part of each other and yeah yeah, I agree with that. And I think one final note, and then we, and then we let's transition to, to Holochain itself, even though clearly we could talk about this for ages. Um, the, um, uh, I feel like the future of governance is not government. That's another great example that I like to give around uh, objects turning to nouns, turning to verbs. It's like, no, no, no. That's what right. is governance? You know, that's that's a that's an action-oriented thing, not a government, which is a noun kind of institution. Um, and then and the other piece there is when people talk about liquid democracy and they say, hey, we have a current system now that's too bad, where you like you you vote for your person or whatever, and then you can't change for two years or four years or whatever. And then it's like, well, do you actually want to be able to change every second? Well, that might not be good either because people might be in and out too quickly and then that gets you to this question of viscosity of the system and viscosity of the the liquidness of the democracy and you need to have a there's a middle number there that works better than either extreme or whatever 
Cryptocurrency is vibrant and exciting, but it's not without its share of bad actors. Exchanges and personal accounts can get hacked, computers can be infected with malware. Left unprotected, your digital wealth is up for grabs. Don't let yourself be a victim. Keepy is the safest and simplest way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and other tokenized assets. This hardware wallet is a separate device that you control. Brought to you by the pioneering team at Shapeshift, KeepKey works with the wallet software on your computer to manage your private keys and transactions. Your device is pin protected, which provides protection if it falls into the wrong hands. Its large display lets you carefully view and approve every transaction. And if your KeepKey is ever lost or stolen, you can safely recover your device without compromising its private keys. The bottom line, you'll sleep easier knowing that your digital wealth is safe and secure. Visit keepkey.com to order yours today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. Okay. <laughs> so with that, yeah. let's talk about Holochain. So it's agent-centric. Um, and I, I, Tell me more. What, what is, how does Holochain work? <laughs> how does it solve the double spend problem? <laughs> yeah, so part of what we're doing when we're talking about agent-centric is we're contrasting that with token-centric because blockchain architectures are token-centric. They make a set of tokens that exist as the um, the data that everybody has to agree on. So we have to have consensus and um, any change to that data, we have to have agreement about that the change happened, that it was a valid change and what order in which it happened so that like you just said, double spend. If if you have rival data, you know I can't change it while while you're changing it because you're the only one allowed to change it, or only one change is allowed to be made, or you know. Um, and so you end up in this this problem of trying to manage consensus about large quantities of data across large mach- quantities of machines. And I think that f- fundamentally. I haven't answered the question about what is Holochain yet. Let me actually do that first. Um, in, In Holochain, part of what we're suggesting is there's no such thing as global state. All state is local and all state changes must be local. And then, um, you can have globally discover, you can have global discoverability of the state changes that have been made and you can have global validation of state changes and, and those kinds of things. But, when you recognize that all state change must be local, um, suddenly the problems that you're trying to solve and that uh, blockchain needs consensus for, a lot of them actually just fall away. And there's a much smaller, it's a different subset of problems. There's other problems we, we have to solve for, but there's a much smaller set of problems that I think lets us um, scale and be agile, scale and grow and change a lot faster than, than blockchain architectures can um and before i get too technical about that i just want to say um yeah this no you have it later in the in the thing i'll skip it i'll come back to that okay sweet so yeah i mean i think that the um it's interesting so token-centric versus agent-centric yeah i think i mostly agree with you to say that the world of blockchain is token-centric though you could also argue some of it is just like transaction centric um not necessarily like with like supply chain stuff that people are exploring that stuff might be um it's just a series of transactions not necessarily with tokens do you um so do do you see what i'm saying there i guess uh or or is that it's also why we use the phrase um data centric Mm -hmm. 
um, if you give data first order existence, mm -hmm. instead of recognize that all data is authored, all data comes from some source of information and is only as good as that source of information. If you give data first order existence over agents, mm -hmm. I think you've already broken data integrity. Yep. yep, yep. Um, okay. And I can go into detail about that, but I think that actually blockchain is starting from a broken data integrity model. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. So you haven't. So and just to check here. So imagine that I just just for me to explore this for a second. So imagine that we are we're in this this hollow chain reality, and let's say I want to. Um, I'm an agent, and I want to. Can I send you? some money um and then if i send you some money within my worldview can i also send that same money to uh our friend over here or how does that uh i guess from my perspective from the agent center perspective maybe my agent just sees hey you only have you know two dollars and you tried just to give it to two dollars each to two people is that how it would solve the kind of double spend problem there or am i still thinking from a backwards mindset <laughs> well Let's back up one second because you jumped straight to money mm -hmm. and understandably from, again, from blockchain context, because pretty much all blockchains have currencies built into them as an incentive to get people to run a very efficient, uh, sorry, a very inefficient architecture that you have to pay people to run. Um, Holochain does not have a built-in currency. We believe that Holochain has to be currency neutral like the internet protocol is currency mm -hmm. neutral so that you can build many and different and competing and contrasting currencies on top of it. Um, and uh, so Holochain doesn't have a built-in currency, and I don't think it has to to be able to incent people for the very same reason that um, Dropbox doesn't pay you to, hold, to have you hold a copy of your files. Mm -hmm. Right? You already want your data. You already want to have control of your data. And... Uh, you know, you pay Dropbox to store a backup copy on the on the cloud, you know, and then you synchronize these directories, but they don't pay you to store your own data. Google Drive, when you sync your files, they don't pay you to store local copies, right? I, I think Holochain is built around the self-interest incentive in that regard of if you run a Holochain instance, you control your identity, you control your data, you own it. Um, and then you can publish it into a shared space that's collectively held and globally validatable and that kind of stuff. But um, it it actually maximizes your autonomy and freedom and the ability to fork away from a group that you may not want to continue to work with or whatever. Nobody can steal your data because you have it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, and that was kind of pushing back on the... The perspective, as you say, there's this money perspective where, as you say, like all blockchains need to have validation. And in order to have validation, you need to incent people to, to validate and to come to consensus. And you do that with money, with magic internet money. Um, and so in a holochain world, if you don't need that, then you might not need to to start with that kind of money first perspective. Well, um, <clears throat> holochain has validation. It just doesn't necessarily have consensus. Yeah. Um, it, and. I know this this may sound crazy to people in the in the blockchain space because they think you have to have it. But now let's take as an example of a Holochain app building a currency on Holochain. Because the kind of apps that we build on Holochain are, you know, wikis and Slack groups and um uh Twitter and Facebook and like we can run those kinds of apps on Holochain mm -hmm. in ways that it's not practical to run them on blockchain because of the 
expense of storage and compute. Um, so if we're running a, a, a currency on Holochain, we recommend that you take an agent-centric approach to the currency rather than a token-centric approach. So in other words, treat it like accounts, not tokens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's already very parallel to double-entry accounting. Every transaction in Holofuel, um, which is the a currency that we're building for a project called Holo <laughs> on top of Holochain. Um, Holofuel, we, we build kind of like a double entry accounting system. Technically, it's more like REA accounting, resource event agent accounting. Um, but every transaction is a offsetting debit and credit to the you know sender and receiver accounts. And um, never are tokens created from nothing. Right, you. The net supply in the system is always zero because all positive and negative balances always must ba- always must balance, mm-hmm. um, and that's just not a way. That's called a mutual credit currency, and most people aren't aren't used to thinking of mutual credit currencies. They are thinking of in terms of fiat currencies, and you know. So interestingly, although the blockchain world refers to national currencies as fiat pretty much all blockchain currencies are fiat. They're spoken into being from nothing. You know, with with every new block that you mine on Bitcoin, you get to put 12.5 new coins on it. And, you know, like, um, that's, they, those came from nowhere. Yep. They were spoken into being by the miner. Yeah. So is it, it sounds interesting, and I agree with you, they, were, they are spoken into being by the miner and they're, they're inflationary by nature. Like we have this kind of inflationary um, mindset around currencies while it says that this other one, that it sounds like there's no inflation within hollow, which is a, as you say, there's lots of on hollow chain, you can, because you don't have the data and compute issues that blockchain has, you can do a bunch of different apps like Wiki and Slack and whatever. And if you really want to, you and maybe you want to, you could do some kind of digital currency versions. And within those current digital currency versions, you are agent centric rather than token centric. And as a result, um, you have, it looks more like this style of counting, the CEA accounting. And within that, um, you said that the amount of tokens within the system is always essentially kind of constant. Is that right? Uh, well, it's always zero. It's always zero. Okay, so you I mean, um, it, it offsets. It's an offsetting balance. Yeah, yeah, sorry, exactly. Okay, interesting. So then, and just to to dive one more quickly on that. So where did the tokens come from? Um, there are no tokens. There's just your balance. Your so balance. if I okay, if I spend ten credits with you, I go down ten. You go up ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right now, fundamentally. Uh, if we were if we were in a situation where I'm a, a host on Holo, because Holo hosts actually can get credit limits, so I can spend and, and we both had zero balances at this moment. If I spend ten credits because I have a credit limit that I haven't started using yet, I go down ten. My balance is negative ten. Yours is positive ten, mm-hmm. right? So the net number of credits in the system from that hasn't changed. Every transaction is in that format. Yeah, yeah, and you're allowed to go negative in that version. Certain accounts are allowed to go negative according to algorithms that manage credit limits to keep the the supply um, correlated to the asset that it's backed by. In the case of Holo, it's backed by computing power of a hosting network. 
Okay, interesting, interesting. Could you say more on that for a second? So, how is the how is Hollow that currency backed by the um, the the computing network? Well, first, I kind of skipped over saying what the difference between Holo and Holochain is. So let me do yeah, that. Yeah, let's, and, let's dive into that. Yeah. And I think our our branding may have been too. Too, too, too proximal, right? The two words can, I think people get confused about the two projects. So Holochain is this um, neutral platform for running peer-to-peer apps. It has no currency. It is an open source project in a, held by a charitable trust. It's, it, it, um, yeah, that's that's Holochain. It is um, a, basically a, data, a cryptographic data integrity engine for peer-to-peer apps. Holo is us building kind of the first large commercial app on top of Holochain. And the app that we're building is basically has us building like the um, Airbnb alternative to cloud hosting in the same way that Airbnb competes with the biggest hotel chains and has never built a hotel. We think we can use Holochain as a scalability platform uh, and be able to use computers in people's homes, be able to use spare computing power, all that kind of stuff where people get paid in Holofuel, they get paid in a cryptocurrency. Um, We think we can use Holochain to create things on that scale without ever having to build a data center and compete with uh, Amazons and Googles and Azures on that scale. And that sounds similar perhaps to something like Filecoin? Is that correct? That Filecoin does that for kind of hard drive space, perhaps? Well, exactly. There are a bunch of projects that do it for hard drive space. There are a bunch of things that do it for storage. There are not projects that do it for compute so successfully. There are projects like Golem and and stuff that kind of do render farm stuff, like compute jobs that you can split up and break off into different peers and that kind of thing, but not for peer-to-peer apps, not for just being able to run the same kind of thing, everything that you would run on Amazon or Google or Azure. Yeah. Yeah. That's the weird thing. I think that people don't get with something like, cause there's Gollum and there's Truebit and something like Gollum, as you say, it's, you can run very specific kinds of tasks on Gollum and on Truebit. It's an, another similar thing where you can run, if you want to kind of outsource the, the, the compute, you can outsource it. And you, and I think it's a very specific kinds of tasks that you can run. And what your claim here is that, um, that with hollow, um, that you can run, uh, th- that it can be any kind of, uh, arbitrary compute essentially. Yes, but it's, it's it's specifically targeted to the web hosting world. Holo basically, um, so let me back up. Holochain is peer-to-peer. You have to install Holochain to talk to other Holochain instances. You have to you have to be running a Holochain app. If like when you download Holochain right now, it comes with a um, peer-to-peer Twitter app called Clutter, and uh, just so that you have something to test and play with. Um, you have to be running a clutter node to talk to other clutter users. You can't just go to a website and expect to find clutter hosted centrally somewhere because there is no central host. Mm-hmm. Every host is hosting, every peer is hosting themselves mm-hmm. with Holochain. What Holo does is it builds a bridge to mainstream web users. It allows some, some Holochain nodes to say, I will carry more than my share. I will host more than myself. But I'll get paid for carrying that extra load. 
So I'll extend virtual holochain space on behalf of web users that are not running a holochain node to carry their own share of the load. And so you can, you know, you can make a fair BNB site and uh, host it on, on holo and grandma can go into her web browser, type an address and be served up this site basically by holochain hosts that are extending virtual holochain functionality to, to her through her web browser. Got it. Got it. Interesting. That makes sense. Um, I like the idea of extending, imagining to my mind, the extension of, of holochain space uh, in, into other people. So I think, I mean, the, the, I think we should be in pseudo wrap up mode here because um, we don't have that much time. And I think, so is there anything else? I mean, one thing that I will say is a, so you can tell that kind of, you know, Arthur's coming at this from a, um, a very, a, a very kind of macro systemic perspective came from a kind of a, a social coherence perspective from the start and then kind of has come into this blockchain world and from that they have all these projects both the there's the metacurrency project there's the scepter project and then from scepter out came holochain and then from holochain holo was the first app to be built on holochain and you can tell that and it's and you can even see from from my perspective here it's like i'm trying to kind of put this into my worldview my blockchain-based worldview and it's kind of interesting and hard and fun um and so this is all say if you're interested in in kind of what arthur and i were talking about at the top and essentially why um you know i brought arthur on the podcast was because you can tell that he's thinking in these interesting ways at the top and then there's also this kind of weird new agent-based reality um from a technical perspective uh so that's 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 interesting in and of itself and and we clearly weren't able to dive as deep into that as possible but um there's clearly resources online before you wrap can i say one more thing about consensus because because i think blockchain people will think i'm crazy because i gave no no substance around that and (laughs) from a transactional perspective right you're making changes to states of coins or you know or whatever you have to know what order those things happen to prevent a double spend all that kind of stuff so you you're, what we do with blockchain is we build a fictional order we take one person's perspective and we go yep that's the order it happened in for that little block of time and then we take another person's perspective and we have this sort of random lottery for through proof of work or we do a proof of stake or we do you know a a supposed consensus algorithm is what that's called but it's not really building consensus it's just choosing a leader it's just choosing one person's perspective uh through kind of a randomization approach um and uh the reason you don't need to do that in holochain is if all state change is local so um like there's this big question about about different blockchain scalability things where they talk about transactions per second transactions per second doesn't make any sense in terms of a holochain app any more than it does to talk about the internet in terms of transactions per second there's no finite limit to transactions on the internet because it's decentralized there isn't a so if if we're running a a currency built on holochain like holofuel and we're doing this 10 i'm spending this 10 credits to you that we were talking about what we do is we send a little message back and forth to each other to construct a transaction that we then both sign to our own local chains so the chain part of holochain is that every agent has their own immutable chain what makes it immutable is that header information from that chain gets published to a DHT, a distributed hash table, a shared data space. And once you've shared that top hash, you can't go back and change anything in your past without breaking that hash. So that's what makes it immutable. We both sign this identical transaction to our chain. Mm -hmm. 
And we're the only two people whose states changed. There wasn't some token in a global inventory list of tokens. There was my account and your account. The only accounts that changed were ours. We both signed the transaction to it. We both timestamped it. We both put it in a series of a, of a hash chain. So we know exactly which transaction it came after for me and came after for you and before for me and before for you. There's no question at all about order of events and, and order and sequence of change. And we don't need to do any kind of global consensus to produce that order. We have it encoded straight into our chains. So it, it absolutely preserves order of change, sequence of events and all that kind of stuff without having to create a consensus about global data or global time which saves tons of compute <laughs> and tons of <laughs> gossip and tons of coordination and then all the extra sort of derivative wasted compute of proof of work or proof of stake and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah cool. So thank you for explaining that because, yeah, it's, as you say, it is you still have that ordering. And as you say, it's not just like a random leader ordering that you say, hey, here's the global consensus given by Bitmain. You know, um, instead you say, hey, we have within from an agent's perspective, the agents um, know their ordering. But that ordering, in many ways, it's a kind of a peer to peer ordering. It doesn't really matter that ordering with respect to kind of the whole global state. It doesn't need to say, hey, I gave you some money, Arthur. And then like two weeks later, um, I gave you some money. Again, that makes sense from our perspective. It's like it happened once, it happened later versus saying hey i gave you some money arthur also all this other crap happened <laughs> and then right. i gave you some more money um, right. so that does make sense and, and exactly yeah, i like the idea of yeah, pushing and it bob to and alice it. are doing a transaction at the same time our transaction doesn't affect their state there's <laughs> yeah. no bottleneck nobody needs to be held up and in, in in holochain the technical limit of transactions is basically the number of users divided by two simultaneous transactions because everybody has to be transacting with somebody else right <laughs> so that's not really a finite limit you keep growing the number of users and this keeps growing the scale of speed exactly yep that makes sense um okay well so we are out of time now but arthur thank you again for coming on the show if you'd like to learn more about um hollow chain where should they go on the internet and where can they also find you on something like twitter um holochain.org and uh, chat.holochain.org is a great as a great chat community with really helpful people in there. Um, on Twitter, we're also Holochain. Also, if you're interested about Holohost or some of the devices that you can run to to, to do Holo hosting, um, that kind of thing, you can do find that at holo.host. Boom, perfect. And what's your Twitter? <laughs> I always ask people. Holochain. <laughs> oh, and your your Twitter your your Twitter name is Holochain. Oh, mine is Art Brock. A-R-T-B-R-O-C-K. That's also my You're, website, You forgot you even had an ego, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you are a self, Arthur. Arthur um, <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much. Um, and definitely, listeners, if you're interested in either the macro stuff or some of the kind of how Holochain works from a consensus perspective, um, uh, then definitely check out um, Arthur and Holochain.